0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your
1: confidence journey today with Byte.
2: From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On today's show, I'm speaking with one of my heroes, Dr. Catherine Young, She's the former senior director of science policy at the Biden Cancer Initiative and currently the executive director of the Shepherd Foundation. This is an extraordinary human being. She's a presidential leadership scholar, a TED fellow, got a postdoctorate fellowship in biomedical engineering at Cornell. You're going to love this show. Dr. Catherine Young, have a listen. You're in town for what?
0: Well, this morning, well, our team at the Shepherd Foundation met with uh, the TED team. So, you might have heard of the TED talks and, and those things. They that act, whole
2: idea is worth sharing that, stuff.
0: Exactly. Um, so, we met with that team because they have what is called the Audacious Prize, where they uh, fund organizations for multi million dollars over multi years. Um, and we were talking about an idea worth sharing with them.
2: I hope it was a good one.
0: I hope so. We'll find out. <laughs> uh, no judgments. No judgments. Right. <laughs>
2: well, we're thrilled you're here. Thank um, you. It's a privilege to have you here. I've been a huge fan, as you know, uh, of all your work, which is substantial. Don't Thank do LinkedIn you. unless you're prepared <laughs> to see the, 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 the resplendent experiences you've oh, had oh in goodness. your career. Well, I I appreciate haven't used them. that word in a long time. Wow.
0: Yes. Thank you That's the so SAT word of the day okay yeah i'll have to look that one up after i leave <laughs>
2: well we, we have to start with you are you were born from south africa
0: i was i was born in johannesburg south africa and lived there for 18 years born and raised mm-hmm. uh, moved to the states right often nelson mandela came into power with the end and abolishment of apartheid good so came here to the u.s with my parents to north carolina
2: yeah, I was going to say, so I haven't, you went to the University of Missouri.
0: Yes, for How would you get there? I know. So it's, you know, I've kind of leaped and bounded all over the U.S. Uh, so landed in Charlotte, North Carolina first from South Africa um, and went to the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. Um, and after that, realized that um, I loved science. I wanted to get a Ph.D. in science. The University of Missouri has an excellent um, biomedical sciences program, and that's what I wanted to do. So ended up going to University of Missouri in the middle of the country. So a great experience in terms of, you know, just living in another part of, of the country. Was
2: the science bug always in you?
0: It was, you know, I had an older brother, he was seven years older than me. Um, And he had such a strong affinity for science and math. And I think because of him having him as a role model in a way growing up, really just um, not forced, but just the trajectory was always straight, because Mm -hmm. he was in front of me, and I wanted to do what he did. Um, And I, I often look back at that and think, gosh, you know, what if I didn't have my brother as a role model? Uh, What what would I be doing today? And so... For me, it has really embedded this desire to be a role model and to really encourage others, uh, specifically for women uh, in the STEM field.
2: I mean, you were a pioneer in the day. Those weren't even words back then.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wasn't using those words no, back then, no. those the new words today. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Back
2: then it was called industrial arts. <laughs> <It> was... <laughs> you learn how to do other, you learn how to do shit that just wasn't like books and stuff. You know, like,
0: exactly. And, yeah. and I will say, kind of growing up in that era, especially in South Africa, um, you know, women t- typically were not encouraged to do those types of subjects. So, you know, the math and the science and they were more encouraged to do at that time. And I'm totally giving my age away, but like typewriting and things yeah. like that. Um, Just go do stenography. Yeah, or, or home economics. Yes. And well, I had, I had no economics. no interest in any of that. So really it's been a part of me from, from the beginning. And I think really because of the encouragement of my family.
2: And as an underachiever, you then went to Cornell for a postdoc, and spoiler alert, I went to Binghamton for biomedical engineering.
0: No way. And then
2: I promptly gave up after organic chemistry four at 7 a.m. Oh my, my gosh. sophomore year, first semester.
0: Well, I'm surprised I, that you even got into organic four because, <laughs> my goodness, that is just, yeah, a whole journey on itself. It so. was insane.
2: I mean, I did well in high school, and they're like, oh, yeah. Binghamton is just far away enough. Right and biomedical five-year master's program and yeah. i'm like nope <laughs> my like, dad's like nope tuition <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god it's it's yeah it's not for everybody but so my my postdoc was in a biome- biomedical engineering department um which was fascinating on its own because again it was looking at a problem that I did in my PhD work was, which was all in the brain. My my PhD is all in neuroscience. Looking at that problem in a totally different way. So biomedical engineering is all about the tools that you use, um, the instruments that you can design to be able to look into the brain or measure things in the brain, um, and my PhD was very much looking at how the brain operates in, in terms of physiology and, and the body. So it was a it was a fascinating switch because it was still at the core the same thing that we were studying, but using very different tools and technology. Well, to it's do still so. like the
2: most mysterious thing in the universe.
0: And it's what really drew me to the brain in the first place, because it is such a black box. Mm-hmm. And I feel like even either the more we know, and I felt this way studying the brain, the more we know, the more we don't know about it. Because you realize how incredibly complex and integrated the brain is, and that we have so much more to learn and understand about it. Yeah.
2: I should also just bring up that Andrews from Rochester. I went to continue with the you know, We, we cannot do. mention... We cannot avoid mentioning Wegmans.
0: We cannot. I think it's I going mean... to be a recurring theme on my show is
2: Wegmans. <laughs> we York would all States be, yeah.
0: We... I, I mean, Wegmans was a staple every Saturday morning.
2: <laughs> it's the tie that binds. Yes. It, it the truly tie that is. Binds. It
0: is. Yes. I mean, we would um, not be welcome back to that part of the world if we did not mention Wegmans no. and the impact of that on our lives. I don't think I
2: told you this, Andrew. When I, My orientation at Wegmans was summer of, of God, 1992, Wegmans was part of orientation, was it? What they took all the downstate kids on a trip to Wegmans no. on the bus, off off campus communication, and we went to Wegmans, and I'd never been obviously in like these these agape, jaw dropping wow. faces of Long Islanders, the Staten Islanders, like so what is this mecca that I've been denied knowing about my right? whole adolescence?
0: It's kind of how I felt when I first moved to the states from South Africa, where we had literally about two different types of cereal to choose from and then you go into a place like Wegmans where you have 200 different types of cereals yes, to choose from yes. I mean it is overwhelming mm-hmm. and sometimes I think you know why do we need so many choices we don't really need
2: that's America no, it, is it's just a hashtag it is America it's definitely a
0: thing yeah I,
2: I, I want I want to talk I didn't know the DOD did other stuff besides you know blow things up and invent Bombs and stuff. The yeah. DD is amazing. It
0: is amazing. And
2: they find all sorts of incredible research. They do all these things that you don't know that they do. Talk about exactly. your experience there.
0: I, it was a Absolute life changing experience for me. I had gone from my postdoc work uh, realizing at the time that I didn't want to spend my life in the lab and that I wanted to do something more that had a global impact. Outdoor cat stuff. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And so I um, applied for a fellowship called the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Science and Technology Fellowship, which allows PhDs to uh, get placed in a federal agency for two years. And the idea is that as a PhD, you learn about the science policy process. And in return, you're able to share your knowledge and skill sets with the government agency. um, Because as we all know, there's a total dearth of scientists in federal agencies, especially in in a place like the DOD, when you're working at the policy level. Right. Um, Fantastic program. And it really allows people who are interested in other areas beyond their PhDs and beyond working in a lab experience to see what else you can do with those skill sets that you've just gained after many, many years of studying. and so I was placed at the Department of Defense in the Biological, Nuclear, and Chemical Warfare Division.
2: Gesundheit.
0: Right? Oh, my God. <laughs> that was a mouthful. I'm <laughs> surprised I can actually still say that. Um, but essentially, what I learned during that process was that the DoD is such a force in diplomacy. Um, and so what we worked on specifically in my kind of tenure there, which was about two and a half years, was um, first I worked on the the former Soviet Union uh, portfolio, which oh, is... Just that. I mean, first I had to Google that, where, <laughs> yeah. where that was. But once I figured out that, I re- re- what you learn is that these countries um, still have a lot of remnants of chemical weapons, of biological weapons. You can think of anthrax, for example. Um, um, and the problem is, is that with these things still sitting around, a lot of them are not secured, um, they still actually pose a great threat, not only to that specific country, but to the rest of the world, and sure. the United States included. So the United States plays a really big role in developing relationships with these countries and their governments to help secure them, uh, provide security. If they are actually doing research with very um, dangerous pathogens, the United States will um, upgrade their equipment, upgrade their labs, um, provide the best protocols to use so that they can do it in the best and most secure way possible.
1: And your role in this was to... My
0: role in this was um, the office that I worked with kind of oversaw all of that kind of diplomacy. So I was very fortunate enough to be able to go over to a lot of these countries with um, diplomatic envoys to meet with the government officials to talk about what the U.S. was going to do and and see that process unfold. Um, My biggest... Uh, kind of impactful experience during that time was with the outbreak of Ebola in Western Africa. Yes. And I was switched to the African portfolio and actually got to travel to Liberia during the time um, because it, it was a fascinating experience. You would walk through hospitals where there would be Ebola patients and there would be fridges in the corridors, basically, with Ebola samples in them. Just just there freely accessible for anybody to wow. be able to open up and see oh and goodness. so our role was to be able to secure those those samples and to help them um with that because again it, they, they thought they might be a possibility for nefarious actions for people coming in taking those samples and using them in potentially you know uh, a terrorism type what a life event. experience oh I mean, it was it's like
2: one of those things. Like, how'd i get here
0: I think about that all the time, to be honest. A lot of my experiences have just been so uh, world-opening and and uh, completely transformative in a way, and that was one of them, absolutely.
2: So from there...
0: From there. Again, like we're doing the Door of the Explorer LinkedIn <laughs> conversation here, yes. because it's,
2: it's so rife with, with opportunities here. I mean, you had a stint at the Foreign Commonwealth Office. Yes. But I, then you... Mm -hmm. found a way to be part of the uh, Moonshot with the Biden initiative.
0: I did. So I worked at the British Embassy as their science advisor. Um... Uh, Again, kind of really at the intersection between science and policy between the two countries, which was, again, a life changing experience. Um, And but that led me again, you know, working at the British embassy, you can only go so far uh, before you have to become a diplomat to Mm -hmm. be able to then make those decisions. And I reached that glass ceiling pretty quickly. Um, and so I was I was open to new opportunities and looking to see what that next step would be for me. And I was so fortunate to be able to uh, get the position as the Senior Director of Science Policy for the Biden Cancer Initiative. They were looking for somebody right at the same time I was looking for new opportunities. And it was just one of those experiences that um, it was the right time at the right place and just you know right all around so
2: i mean with my advocacy hand on running stupid cancer i never felt that bci got the the uh sort of the schoolhouse rock understanding mm-hmm. of what it meant to the average person out there right if you're able to schoolhouse rock what its initial purpose was how would you explain that
0: you know it was such a a unique organization in that it didn't focus on one specific cancer. Um, rather, our goal was to look at the system that cancer resides in, um, identify those barriers that if you could remove them, you could really accelerate the path towards treatment and support for, pa- for patients. Um, and we realized that the way to do that was to bring the right people together that had the skills and the resources to be able to do that. And our power was really Vice President Biden, Dr. Biden, um, who were, you know, our leaders in this organization that could bring those people together. And there's not many organizations that have that kind of power to be able to bring uh, who they needed at the right time and and have everybody being absolutely 100 percent dedicated to that cause.
2: Yeah, the way I I was to understand it, and as I came to learn way more about it, Mm -hmm. is it was a very holistic scientific approach. It wasn't a very linear scientific approach where research is research, and it's indoor cats and labs and process and blah, blah. This was, again, the regrettable tragedy of of Bo's passing led them to appreciate that it wasn't just more than cure. There was so much more in the in the ether of understanding why and how
0: absolutely yeah i think all of my experiences have have lent to this view of first of all you cannot accomplish something big by yourself. And you have to recognize that there are a thousand different players that need to come together in order to really make a significant difference because everybody is bringing with them a different type of skill set, a different way to view the problem, a different way of thinking about solutions. And if you don't have that holistic group together, you're just not going to get to the right solution. Um, And I think the Biden Cancer Initiative has really been the closest I've ever been to to really kind of bring that solution to really big problems as well.
2: Yeah. Someone once told me early on that collaboration is the new competition Mm -hmm. and you guys really embodied that.
0: Absolutely there was from the get go we wanted to make sure that people understood that we were not a competitor in the space and and cancer especially when it comes to the nonprofit organizations can, can be, or at least the, my, my experience is that a pretty competitive space. Um, we wanted to make it very clear that our goal was to elevate, empower, and to provide a platform for the work that was already being done. Because one of the biggest challenges we found was that patients or family members or researchers didn't even know of some of the incredible work that was being done because it's so buried. Yeah. And we wanted to uplift that a bit.
1: A center of excellence that uh, that is capable of convening and bringing people together. Exactly. Uh,
0: exactly right.
1: And is there an organization or an institution that's prepared to do that now? Yeah,
0: you know, that's a good question. Uh, I look at Vice President Biden and Dr. Biden as these two individuals that were really able to radically transform the way we work in the Kansas space mm-hmm. that I haven't seen uh, people at that, you know, kind of status or level do before. And and not to say that there are not people out there who are leading this effort, but um, you know, them uh, with, with Vice President Biden stepping back because of the, the presidential election, um, it has kind of left this this temporary ho- a
2: bit of a vacuum yeah i i, a I would believe vacuumer. that
0: um and but the on on the on the positive side is that regardless of the outcome that will come from this he will return to that work yes um in in whatever capacity that is that i absolutely believe
2: so in the time that you were there that it existed and i'm just going to say phase one mm-hmm. what do you think was the uh, most tangible or tactical accomplishment you can be proud of
0: Um, you know, I think for us, I mean, there were a couple, um, we, we were really at kind of the precipice of a lot of stuff that was about to start in the implementing stage. I think we never quite managed to get to the point where we could look back and say we have an absolute tangible product for, for somebody. But I think what, one of our greatest, um, contributions was just the mobilization of a lot of the communities and Rethinking a lot of how we approach these solutions. So going back to the fact that um, bringing the people together who may not have been sitting at the table together before, but then having had that experience, understood that it's important that we need to uh, collaborate on a, on a whole on a whole host of things. So, but we were focused on a whole range of issues, um, all the way from you know um, uh, prevention to the uh, looking at transforming and reforming clinical trials and what that would look like, um, patient access to treatment and cost of care, uh, to data sharing. So these were, were massive problems that require a lot of time and energy, and um, it will be interesting to see how we might be able to continue that work um, once, once uh, we get them back.
2: Back with our guest after the break.
1: That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes.
2: Talk about starting the morning right. I think what i one of my biggest takeaways of the ongoing conversations was this idea of you know care isn't just clinical care is is human
0: absolutely and
2: <clears throat> there was a lot of talk about supporting the nursing community oh yes. way much more right because they're underserved there aren't enough of them in this country there's a huge gap in 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 pay and access and 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 even the a recognition of the value they have to the health economic outcomes conversation out there. I was really jazzed that that was something that was living in the mindset or the the philosophy of what needed to be accomplished because I cannot speak enough about how critical the nursing profession is to making everything suck a little less.
0: Everything we did had... A nurses or several influence in it we would never have a conversation or tackle a big problem without that perspective because um as a a group we we absolutely understood the value of that and you know it's just like anything in life where if you take if you look at a problem or or um, a service, it, it's often several layers down mm-hmm. where the actual work gets done. Right. And those are the people that you need to be able to tap in who often hold the answers to your solutions yes. or your problems. Uh, right. But yet we often fail to include them in those conversations. And until we actually do a better job at that, I think we're always going to be spinning around in circles.
2: Yeah, we would talk about a portfolio of end users.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: This, this, um, this subject of... It, it sounds like the Biden Cancer Initiative was moving toward um, the establishment... Is this too strong a word of standards or best practices gathered absolutely. across all of these organizations? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, so one of the, the things we were looking at was actually standardizing data, for example. So the idea that, you know, data... Data sharing's a really big issue, but even if we do share data, hmm. if you don't have it in one standardized form, it it's really of no use. So hmm. it is looking at the system and and being able to define what those standards are that allows the system to work on a much smoother scale to allow then for acceleration towards those treatments. so yeah, absolutely i would I would agree with that.
2: Yeah, there's no babble fish yet that unifies the way different health systems that have been evolving over the last couple of years can talk to each other.
0: Right. Absolutely. And I think, you know, this really talks to how embedded our healthcare system is entrenched in really bad culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I'm probably preaching to the choir now, but A lot of what what we were dealing with really ultimately boiled down to if people decided that they wanted to change it, they could. And that was simply the, the simplest answer. But because it's so difficult to kind of change trajectory of massive scaled systems like a a hospital or healthcare system. And because it's all so entrenched right now in financial gain, um, it's very hard to start changing that trajectory until you get the buy-in of people who not only can make those decisions to make the change, but actually believe that this is the way that it needs to be done now, And and that's hard.
2: Yeah, the uh, I'm mad as hell and can't take it anymore is starting to really crest.
0: Hmm. Yep, absolutely. And I think more and more we have come to the light in terms of the voice of the patient in everything that we do, too. <clears throat> so we spoke about nurses being so important, yes. but my goodness... We, we cannot solve these issues without the patients themselves, too, having a voice in this. And I do believe there is this momentum growing where patients are getting a lot louder and they are starting to become way more educated about what their rights are and, and, and what should be done for them. Right. Um, and and I, I'm excited to see that there is this kind of mobilizing of patients and their voices together to start really shifting the needle forward. Because I really think that that, at, at the crux of it, is what, what we need.
2: Well, we, we talk all the time about healthcare is not a demand market.
0: Right. Exactly.
2: (laughs) No one wakes up and says, I can't wait to go to, you know, uh, MD Anderson one day. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So there's no way to know what the customer wants because you can't expect them to know what they need. Right. And how do you reverse engineer a market that doesn't want to be there in the first place? Exactly. But you're only listening to the people who are already in the market.
0: Exactly. So how do
2: you help the people that aren't in the market? Right. It's this phenomenally ridiculous, like Neil deGrasse Tyson level head exploding Absolutely. conversation to have. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> no, but it, it's so important. And and I think if anything that I've learned, it's, it's that um, the U.S. especially is so well positioned to start making those changes because we have the people, we have the infrastructure, we have the mind, the the powerful minds that can come up with innovative solutions, and uh, we just need to to actually start getting stuff done.
1: And the arrival at a solid recommendation for a solution is only part of it. Absolutely, you alluded to uh, the financial interest associated with many players, right? Uh, in in things not changing, or in things changing in a way that benefits them, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so. It seems like a very important aspect of the conveni- convening power. Absolutely, of a Biden Cancer Initiative is to get those people out in public and to and to help them uh, speak in public and be accountable for
0: absolutely making
1: those decisions. And and, and it Vice is President, a political act.
0: It is, and Vice yeah. President Biden was was very good at that and not afraid to do that. Um, and and you bring up another good point because even though we were really good at convening. Um, and, and a lot of people will go shake, you know, nod their heads at this. It, it's not just about the convening. It's about the execution and implementation of the idea, which Correct. is really hard. So you get a lot of, you know, motivation and inspiration from from these groups when they come together at the table. But when everybody leaves and goes home, it just falls flat. And so the one of the biggest challenges I see is how do we continue that momentum going forward and keeping people motivated to push that forward, especially in our case, where we were really depending on people, people's goodwill to do this. In and above their day jobs, right. you know. So a lot of what we were asking people to do was not necessarily a part of their baked-in job description, um, and what they were being um, evaluated on on their job. So, uh, so it is. It, it requires people to really go that one step further, yeah. and the, to the be retention strategy. Yes, the retention <laughs> strategy. Yeah. yeah, and but I will say that I was so surprised to see yeah. just how dedicated people were to do to work on that.
2: Uh, so, in our time left, because you can't sit still, <laughs> you're now doing a million other things. But let's talk about the Shepherd Foundation because that's yes, very interesting. in Your foray you. to rare disease.
0: Absolutely. So, uh, my my current position is the executive director of the Shepherd Foundation. Um, it is a foundation that is focused on rare cancers um, and. You know, coming from the Buying Cancer Initiative, and I, I, I've been so influenced by my time there that I honestly see this as an opportunity. To do very much similar work, um, but now focused on the rare cancer community. Although, you know, in, in all honesty, when I think of rare cancer and what we might do to be able to help or support, it really that extends to the entire cancer community as a whole. But I am I am so excited to have this position. Um, I see rare cancer patients as a, a community that really. Um, have been served a lot of injustice and inequality, especially when it comes to um, treatment options and support and research dollars that go their way. And so I'm excited to really try and try and push that forward.
2: Yeah, justice is a word that gets thrown around a lot, but mm-hmm. I believe that when you're, we say when you enter the shit happens door, right. there's no greeter. Right. And how do you live your life with dignity in a market you didn't want to belong
0: Exactly. In? Exactly.
2: But that's extraordinary. And again, like having a partnership with the National Organization of Rare Disorders now where I'm becoming like this, the new voice of of rare disease. I'm learning so much about not just that I am in the rare disease as any young adult cancer Mm -hmm. is a rare disease. But how do you even wrap your head around millions of people living and suffering with who just wanna have some dignity Absolutely. and live a great life.
0: Absolutely. And you know, in our research we've discovered that out of the four hundred different types of cancers there are, three hundred and eighty of them are rare. Yeah. Which means that out of the one point two million people that will be diagnosed, five hundred and fifty thousand of them will have a rare cancer. Right. So our message really, and and you know, I, I believe Nord is very much in aligned with this is that rare is not rare. No. It's not. and we have to change that narrative. And 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 because of that, if we can change that narrative, you know, we can start changing the federal dollars that go towards it. And yeah. if you change that, you change the development pipeline for therapeutics and drugs. And that then starts to open up the opportunities for those patients to live with dignity and, and you know, have an extended life.
2: I mean, Nord's huge coup was getting the Rare Disease Act passed, mm-hmm. but that's, I think, first steps. Right. There should totally be a a revisitation of what that means in 2020.
0: Absolutely.
2: And dig down into how we improve what... Clearly, still needs a lot of improving.
0: Absolutely, and I'm I'm so um, heartened by the the Nord Rare Cancer Coalition as well. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's the coming again those convenings of those types of organizations and that thought leadership that really starts to change the way we think about things and and push time in um, and and money towards those things. Yeah, so.
1: and, and as we look at the uh, Shepherd Foundation. Um, I'm very interested in knowing uh, the specific approach that you bring. You're focused on rare cancers, yeah, and um, and and what are the what are the areas of, of, of greatest interest for for the foundation?
0: Absolutely. Um, so the first thing that I did when I joined was I, I kind of did a landscape analysis of of rare disease, rare cancer organizations that already exist. Because my thought is that, um, you know, if we can start to galvanize the community together, we can have so much more power and impact. Um, so I, I, we identified about 240 organizations. We've reached out to every single one of them. We um, gave them a survey and asked them, what are their biggest barriers? What are you working on? What do you need help with? And we, we took that really as the basis of what we might start looking at. Hmm. So one is molecular diagnostics. This is a huge one. So the idea that a patient can have a test done to really get their tumor sequenced, identify what those mutations are, and then either see whether or not there are already targeted drugs or maybe are are eligible for a particular clinical trial is huge. Right. And yet the community... Um, is very uneducated about the the Melika diagnostic test, either on the patient side or the clinician side who doesn't offer it. Um, And this is potentially a cost-saving, time-saving, and life-saving test. So we have a huge emphasis on um, the public awareness and education about molecular diagnostics, but also the data that comes from molecular diagnostics and how if we can start pulling that together, we can actually start to group people together in terms of their molecular drivers and start targeting drugs for those patients. So instead of it being lung cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer, it is now what is driving your cancer, which may, you know, be across several different cancers. And that kind of ushers us into this new era of precision medicine, which is where we are going for. So molecular diagnostics is um, one. We also have a lot of legislative priorities because we believe that we In order to make change you have to tackle it from all different angles and trying to get federal policy changes is one way we can do that so um shepherd uh last year just secured 12.5 million dollars in the federal budget Specifically for rare cancer, this was the first time mm. rare cancers ever had a line in the federal budget before, and we're going to push for fifty million dollars this year. So we are trying to tackle it from that federal angle and and getting everybody on board that this is this is what we need to do.
1: So you continue to be at work in D.C. I am, yes. Very so we so.
0: are. Um, so the foundation is based in D.C., and a lot of our work will will continue out of that front. And then, of course, galvanizing and, and being that platform and unifier similar to what the Biden Cancer Initiative did. I, I I would love to do that for the rare cancer community. There's so much good work being done, and yet not a lot of people are aware of it. And we want to shine a light on that. Um, so, so uh, you know uncovering and making aware the the resources that currently exist for patients so that when they are diagnosed, um, they have a place to come to that lays it out for them, I think is, is something that we will be focusing on as well.
2: Yeah. The very definition of advocacy is making sure someone, uh, the next person is better off than the first person. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely.
2: I'm again i'm a huge fan you've done so much in your career and it's like you're just getting started Mm. you know we talk about i'm in like version six of my life you're in like version forty thousand of your life (laughs) and so much more to go but it's been i so appreciate that what an honor to have you here to chat and welcome to the rare disease world
0: thank you it was an honor to be here honestly and uh to have this conversation with you and I, i truly appreciate it thank you so much for having me
1: That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horangeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.
0: Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader.